Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And this is episode 126. And today I have Dr. Pete Peeling as my guest. Hi, Pete. Hi, how are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. So um, I seem to be on a sort of an Australian mission here where there's uh, uh, quite a few uh, of my guests of late have been from your part of the world. Um, and the reason why I'm having this chat with you today is, as we were just discussing off air, was I had recently done a podcast with Dr. Trent Stenningworth about um, altitude and how you know, nutrition can play a role in that. And during the course of that research, I had read, um, uh, well, I read all sorts of stuff. But in particular, I, I found myself getting quite deep into your work uh, on iron. Um, and um, how that affects many things. And I've come across you, well, I've been aware of your work for many years now, but, but this, this made me think, do you know what? This has to be a conversation. And um, today here we're a couple of days out from Christmas, like two geeks <laughs> escaping our households full of crazy children. Um, so uh, I appreciate your making time for us today. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain a bit more about why I wanted to have this chat with you today, which will be about iron considerations for uh, athletes. Um, and you're absolutely the man to have that chat with. But in case um, our listeners aren't aware of you um, and what you're up to, maybe you could just give us that, that all too common now to this podcast, the, the overview of the guest expert, please. Yeah, of course. So, uh, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me, of course. Uh, so, uh, I work at the University of Western Australia as a lecturer and researcher uh, with a focus on sports performance. And I guess my key focus area within that is has been uh, iron metabolism in athlete populations. So, I've worked at UWA now for about six years full-time. And prior to that, I used to work at the Western Australian Institute of Sport as a physiologist, where I worked with uh, about seven sports programs, uh, quite similar to, I guess, how Trent works in the Canadian system, except my role was more at a state level rather than a national level, although our kayak program had five Olympians in that squad. So it was, was a, a, a high-performing uh, group within that kayak uh, program at the time. Uh, so from there, I moved into the university system and I then flipped my role when I was working as a practitioner I had a, a fractional appointment as a lecturer and, and now I'm full-time in the university system I have a fractional appointment back in the institute system where I work as the director of research uh, for the Western Australian Institute of Sport so we have a research program there uh, we have nine embedded PhD students that are looking to answer coach driven questions uh, as part of their PhDs um, so that we get this kind of uh, joint benefit from uh, work integrated learning where the students are performing service provision roles but also answering questions that are coming from the trenches and trying to help coaches get best outcome uh, in their daily training environment. So I'm kind of across these two roles at the moment and having a lot of fun. No, well, that, that's awesome. In fact, I'm really pleased you just mentioned the trenches because as you may have heard in previous episodes, that is... Uh, a phrase I like to use to describe <clears throat> the uh, the realities of practice, which is you know where we find that theory <clears throat> rarely articulates itself, um, and you know that's what I find very interesting about the spectrum of 
um, research, the spectrum of knowledge that exists out there on various topics and, you know, the different perspectives that different researchers have. And, and you know, everyone, for the most part, they've all got a great deal of value to offer. But for me as a practitioner, you know, the difficulty is sometimes is differentiating, you know, that knowledge that is firmly grounded in theory uh, but not so much in, you know, relevance to, to practice and, and that which actually does manage to bridge that gap, which is what I'm all about with this, with this podcast. And that sort of brings me to this topic, which, um, you know, you, 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 you can read any, any sort of form of health or medical uh, literature, uh, textbooks and so on. You're going to come across a section that delves into to iron and the relevance of that to... Uh, health, physiological functioning, you know, there's a, a great deal of concern over uh, iron deficiency and anemia just in the general population. It's something that, that you know, general practitioners, medical doctors um, will deal with on a, on a regular basis. And it is something that, you know, we think about in, in sports science, um, iron metabolism, iron regulation, and so on. But it was when I was reading your work, some of which I've reread, and, and particularly this new narrative review that came out recently from, from your group in um, uh, the Iron Considerations for the Athlete, a narrative review in uh, European Journal of Applied Physiology, which is one of the papers I'll link to this episode. It just sort of reminded me of just how much there is in this topic, but also how much of a difference there is between general population and athletes and what we're learning from researchers such as yourself about things like the impact of training, the timing of training, um, the differences between males and females and so on. And there's quite a lot there. So for the practitioner, there's a great deal that they need to know about this topic and, um, you know, I've said many times, it's so exciting now to be a performance nutritionist or, you know, a sports scientist or a practitioner one way or the other that, that, that deals with nutritional influences on health and performance in active people and, and athletes is there is so much that we can do to help support our athletes in terms of, well, first and foremost is, you know, I, I always reiterate the primary role of a performance nutritionist. It's got nothing to do with performance. We're trying to keep our athletes healthy healthy and functional. So there's that, but also maximizing or optimizing um, the adaptations to training and ultimately on race day or game day, ensuring that they're firing on all cylinders and we get the best out of that athlete and um, we avoid them being injured or ill or, or whatever. And, and uh, even if they do go down those paths, which happens of course with athletes that we can return them to play uh, getting back in the gym, getting back on pitch as fast as possible. So with all that said, iron is going to be a very important topic for us, which I feel is under explored in sort of your general typical educational programs. Um, uh, and that's why I wanted to have this, this chat with you. So just, just uh, Pete, how, I mean, how did you even get into this particular area? Um, uh, that would be a really interesting start to chat. Uh, yeah, so I started in this area. This was actually um, my PhD topic, looked at iron deficiency in athletes. And um, I actually got interested in the area because I'm a, a hack runner. So, and by hack, I mean very hack 
runner and you'll appreciate that when you work with high-level athletes as to how <laughs> you actually are. Um, but when I was uh, running through my undergrad kind of days, I, I had um, ferritin levels at six and uh, I was always tired and uh, wasn't really sure why. So I had a um, blood test and, and found out that I was iron deficient and had to work on nutritional means to try and improve my iron stores during that period um, and so I had a bit of fun kind of getting to know a bit about myself but was intrigued by the concept of uh, the more you train the more I seem to struggle with my iron stores and um, and therefore thought well hey that's something that's personally interesting to me uh, maybe I'll follow up on this and do some more research as a, a postgraduate and um, started reading around the area more in the area of chronic disease. And so if you think about chronic disease, there's, there's a lot of research that's been done in the anemia of inflammation and uh, in obesity. There's, a, there's a, a fairly significant proportion of obese individuals that uh, report as being iron deficient. And a lot of the work had, had started to, um, to look at different mechanisms uh, as to why uh, individuals may be iron deficient in the in in the face of inflammation and, and those sorts of processes in a chronic disease state. So there was a lot of work coming out of uh, UCL, UCLA at the time uh, where they were looking at different hormones and how that might impact your ability to absorb iron at a gut level. And all of the work that I was reading in this area was pointing towards inflammation as, as being a key driver behind uh, hormone changes which were affecting the ability of the gut to absorb iron. So naturally I was kind of thinking, well, there's, there's this known link um, with exercise and inflammation, so maybe we could apply what we know from this uh, clinical model into a, a sport-related um, domain. So, so we started to do some work in this area and um, look at some of the hormones that were being traced in the clinical population and, and applying that back to a, a sporting population. And at the same time as we were kind of thinking this way, uh, another group in Europe were also thinking similarly. And so a couple of papers came out at about the same time that started to find a, an association between exercise and our master iron regulator, which is a hormone known as hepcidin. And then our work has kind of stemmed from, from that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it, it, you've obviously had a deep level of fascination for this for reasons that you've already uh, introduced us to. And I have to say that, you know, when I read your, your work, particularly this narrative review, you know, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing really just how, how much is involved um, uh, with this. So um, I, your paper actually starts off with a statement, which is iron is a fundamental mineral used by the body for numerous processes. And I mean, that's, that's almost an understatement, isn't it? Because iron is, I mean, there are, there is a lot of nutrients that you could have gone into. You could have gone and explored, you know, the role and relevance of a specific, you know, mineral like boron or zinc or something, but iron is like the, 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 like the superhero, the king of Kings. I mean, just, you know, just so we're all on the same page here, maybe you could just give us a little, uh, basic overview of, of why is why do you describe iron as a fundamental mineral in the first place like why is it such an important one to spend all that time on yeah so um, re really relevant to athletes I guess is the is the functions that iron plays in the body so if we think about a red blood cell the job of the red blood cell is obviously to carry oxygen around the body and deliver that oxygen to the working muscle 
And for a red blood cell to do that, it uses iron to bind oxygen and actually carry the oxygen within the red blood cell around the body. So without the, those um, iron complexes within the red blood cell, we wouldn't be able to carry oxygen and therefore deliver it. So if you think about oxygen as being uh, a key uh, prospect to uh, energy um, production in an aerobic sense, then iron is, is really important in, in our ability just to walk around, but from an athlete perspective, certainly to run. So that's, that's one key component is the delivery of oxygen and the carriage of oxygen around the body. But then when the oxygen is delivered to the muscle and we think about cellular processes, uh, iron uh, complexes are also involved in uh, energy production at the level of the mitochondria. So for us to produce ATP, uh, we obviously use uh, a number of enzymes to um, to create that energy and some of those enzymes are iron dependent as well. So not only are we talking about delivering oxygen to the muscle, but we're also talking about the muscle producing energy for work. Both of those processes are dependent upon uh, healthy iron stores or at least having iron in the system to be able to do that. The irony of those two things is that the body doesn't produce its own iron, so we have to look to external sources to be able to supply the iron that the body needs to, to do those um, to, to function as it does. And the only way that we can really get iron from a natural perspective is from food. So uh, it's this kind of challenge and a balance that's really exciting is the body's completely dependent upon iron to be able to function, yet we have to look to external sources to be able to uh, do that. So they're two key processes. We also know that iron's uh, fundamental in cognitive processes. So in terms of us thinking and making decisions in sport, if we're iron deficient, that could pose some issues for us when we are making decisions uh, and, and using cognitive function. And then another really important one, which we probably don't think about as much, but it's immune function. Our immune function is also highly dependent upon uh, iron um, in the process of, uh, of the enzymes that are used um, in host defense. And so obviously if we have a poor functioning immune system, we'll have in an athlete context, athletes getting sick more often, and therefore missing training. And we all know that training consistency is the most important thing to uh, athlete adaptation. And so if we can have a healthy functioning immune system, then we've got a better chance of, of getting a good outcome from a training effect. So if you think about those four things, oxygen delivery, energy production, cognitive, and, uh, cognitive functioning, and uh, immune function, they're four really important processes to an athlete population that are highly dependent upon iron from external sources for us to be able to function appropriately. Yeah, I mean, wow, and that's massive. Uh, and we could just leave it at that and go <laughs> do something else with this conversation <laughs> because it's almost tempting to just go, yeah, iron's that important and, you know, boom, you know, let's all take supplements or something. And that's not necessarily the case, though. And, and um, there's quite a lot of areas that, you know, that we can talk about, which we will attempt to in, in this chat. But the first thing that, I think we should maybe discuss is, is how, I mean, just, you know, we're all human beings, we're all walking around. Um, you know, we don't, we don't really know necessarily what our iron levels are at and not everyone even has access to testing for their iron levels. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about um, lots of different influences on what might result in iron deficiencies and so on in a bit, but, but this, this, this sort of awareness 
both from an individual's perspective, but also from the people that work with those individual athletes. Like, you know, how are we, how are we even going to know, um, how would we define for ourselves an actual deficiency? Yeah, so I think, um, well, the, the key uh, known indicators that we might be suffering from, from an iron deficiency are lethargy, tiredness, and fatigue. And I think if an athlete is, um, is training and is having these symptoms of poor recovery, constantly feeling tired, even when they're having days off or recovery-based sessions and still not adequately recovering, it's probably at that point that you start to question, okay, maybe I need to go see my sports doctor, my physician, and, and have a chat about why I'm feeling this way. Uh, and uh, in those instances, presenting with those symptoms, one of the first things that a, that a sports physician would likely do is to send you for a blood test to have your iron levels checked um, and, and to check that there's nothing else, obviously, sinister going on. But, but an, uh, an, uh, a panel of iron studies would be a key um, initial screening that a sports physician would look at based on those symptoms. So it's really about um, recovery, uh, lethargy, fatigue, and, and how you're withstanding training, and especially when training might not be changing that much. So if you're in a period of um, higher intensity or ramped training for, for a point in time and it's a short period, you may expect to feel those, those symptoms of lethargy and fatigue. But when the training backs off and you're not able to recover, you're still having those feelings, you're always tired, that's the point when you go, okay, I may need to go and see my sports physician to check this out and make sure that uh, my iron levels are okay. So I think they're the, the key symptoms that you, would, that you would see in an individual prior to having an investigation of a blood panel to, to check things out. Yeah, and I mean, you know, as you, as you describe what those symptoms are, you know, it, it seems clear, well, hang on, there's all sorts of things that could cause these symptoms, which leads us to the obvious answer, which is why guess when you can test, obviously. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I mean, okay, for, the, for, the, for those that are not in any way, shape, a serious athlete, um, which are unlikely to be anyone listening to this podcast one way or the other. And by that, I mean, you know, sort of competitive recreational triathletes, for example, you know, endurance athletes, football players, there's all sorts of, you know, um, athletes and their uh, classifications out there. But at the end of the day, um, testing is, is something that's going to help you understand where you're at with this. And uh, we're going to explore that um, in a little bit more detail, because I, I know that you, you know, you have various classifications for um, iron status, but also there are different scenarios and different types of athletes that maybe shouldn't just have a test, but should have regular testing. So, um, but before we go, we go down that path, I know that you've done quite a lot of work and actually in the actual classification of these various states of iron deficiency because it's not just a black and white you either are or not um it's a bit more complex than that maybe you could give us an idea and and, and what, what's the sort of terminology that we need to be talking about and looking out for as it relates to that yeah so it it, it that's a, a really good comment that that you know it's not just black and white you're either iron deficient or you're not and, and there are certainly different levels uh, that we should be aware of. So we, we tend to think of iron deficiency in three classifications uh, in terms of severity. So the first classification being not as severe as the third classification. So um, the first classification that we talk about, we, we tend to term that as iron deplete rather than deficient. And 
And so it's at the point of iron depletion that we start to raise a couple of red flags around athletes saying, okay, look, this, this athlete is showing signs of potential um, symptoms of iron deficiency, so the fatigue and lethargy that we just spoke about. But also if we look at their blood panel, we can see that uh, their serum ferritin, so that's the store of iron within the athlete, uh, is, is getting towards the low end of, of what we consider as healthy and it's at that point that we start to raise a red flag and go, okay, this is an athlete that we may need to keep an eye on uh, and maybe make some dietary changes to ensure that the levels of iron don't drop too much further than this point. But it's at this point that it's really just a, the implication is on the iron store and the hematology of the athlete hasn't yet become affected. So the, the hemoglobin levels or the hemoglobin mass of that athlete, um, so two independent things there, uh, are looking okay. So that's the first stage. We call that iron depletion. And, and although we're not super worried about the athlete at that point, it is a good time to try and intervene with dietary intervention uh, to try and make sure the athlete doesn't fall any further into that cycle of, of iron deficiency. Uh, the next stage um, from that point, uh, we tend to think of in, as the, the second stage of iron deficiency is, uh, again, the serum ferritin levels are have dropped a little bit further than what they had um, in the deplete stage. Uh, and we're, we're starting to get an impact at the, at the bone marrow level uh, and, and we're, we're starting to become concerned about uh, hemoglobin uh, becoming impacted. And once hemoglobin levels start to become impacted, then we move into the third stage of iron deficiency, which we would call iron deficient anemia. So, that, that's the three stages that we talk about. But if you wanted to, I guess, keep it super simple, um, we could say that you could either be iron deficient non-anemic or iron deficient anemic. And, uh, and the differentiation point between those two, so both of them have low serum ferritin levels uh, with iron deficient anemia having lower serum ferritin than iron deficiency, um, non-anemia. But the difference, the, the primary difference between the two would be the fact that hemoglobin levels have become impacted and once your hemoglobin levels become impacted and we're considered anemic, then we start to have issues with physical work capacity because we are, we're obviously if we have an um, implication on our hemoglobin stores, we're delivering oxygen around the body less efficiently. So, so we want to prevent athletes from getting to an anemic state and try and treat them when they're showing signs of, of being uh, iron deplete or iron deficiency without the anemia occurring. Brilliant. <clears throat> There's so much there that I want to get into. Um, uh, yeah. And before we get into this, you know, what, what are the, what are the, you know, so what? Well, what are the consequences of this? And we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but I want to just just come back to, the, you know, what I just said is, is, you know, why guess test? But the thing about testing is, is it's still open to interpretation. Um, we, you know, someone just gets a blood test and they get a, you know, a piece of paper back from the lab and it gives them a number of set against a reference range and the practitioner will come up with some opinion about what that means. But, but therein lies um, a Pandora's box of problems in itself because, of course, um, it, it will depend on the type of tests, the type of panel um whoever's interpreting it you know what are the reference ranges are we talking about normal norm, quotes on quotes normal what the hell is a normal person anyway yes. <clears throat> certainly isn't an athlete um and then you've got you know average athletes to elite athletes males and females and then there's my favorite 
part of all this, which is, well, what about the various nuances, the contexts that are involved, you know, pre-training, post-training? Because there are so many things that will influence what, what essentially we see on that, that piece of paper that the lab produces um, and how we should be interpreting that information. And I fear that this is an issue that, you know, people will they'll just get, maybe go see their general practitioner, get a blood test, and they'll assume that whatever that number is, is how it should be, you know, interpreted as being okay or not okay, or, or you know, false positives and so on. So I realize that's a fairly complex area that I've just opened the door to, but I think it is important so that people have a better understanding of why they may or may not truly understand what that number is and why they really should go see someone who actually does know what they're doing with this. Yeah, it's it's a really good point, and um, and to the point where in the in the paper that you've mentioned that uh, that, that you've highlighted here, the narrative review, we've tried to put together a bit of a, a table um, or at least a framework as to how practitioners and athletes can go about ensuring that the test results that they get are optimized to be able to make a call on where the athlete is at. Because as you mentioned, there are so many factors that go into um, possibly impacting the variables that we look at to determine if someone is iron deficient or not. And that's one of the real criticisms of the blood panel that we do use to detect iron deficiency in the general populations, but specifically in athletes. So, uh, the, so I'll probably take a step back, but one of the key variables that we look at in terms of determining an athlete's um, iron stores is their serum ferritin level. And we tend to use a cutoff uh, value of around 30 micrograms per liter of um, serum ferritin to determine whether someone has a healthier iron store or is starting to fall into an area um, where we might consider them to be iron deplete. The problem with that is serum ferritin is actually an acute phase uh, respondent. So in periods of uh, inflammation, for instance, then we would see an increase in serum ferritin levels. And as we um, kind of spoke about at the start of the podcast, exercise uh, lends itself to inflammatory states, at least acutely. Uh, so if you send an athlete for a blood test after they've done a training session, you will probably get an elevated serum ferritin level. And therefore, you may make a call around an athlete's iron status that could be uh, quite detrimental to their overall outcome. So what we've tried to do is put together a framework um, that, directs people around the best case scenario that you can create for an athlete or any individual um, in going into a blood test so that ideally the panel that we get back is reflective of their baseline iron stores without the implications of these inflammatory states that can elevate um, the different levels um, of the panel. And similarly, a training effect can do that too. So if we get a blood plasma expansion, some of the variables that we look at in the blood panel are also sensitive to changes in um, plasma volume expansion. So we've got to be really careful as to when we test uh, and the conditions that we send an athlete into testing um, uh, to have their blood panel done. So what we tend to recommend is the time of day is, is really important. So we need to make sure that athletes or anyone getting a, an iron test goes in the morning. Uh, we would ideally see that occur on a rest day or at least uh, coming off of the back of a rest day before an athlete starts training again. So uh, they've had at least 12, preferably 24 hours of rest, uh, that they're in a uh, hydrated state 
uh, and that they haven't completed any uh, eccentric based muscle damaging type exercise in the two to three days uh, two to three days prior to that blood test um, because obviously that those eccentric um, based exercises can cause a, a significant inflammatory response and, and could alter some of these acute phase proteins. Uh, the last condition that we like to kind of uh, recommend before going to get one of these blood panels done is that you don't have any signs of illness or sickness because, again, there'll, there'll be an inflammatory prospect um, in an athlete going for a blood sample uh, in that state. So, so there are a lot of considerations going into when an athlete should get their blood panel checked and uh, you really do need to talk to your practitioner, so that's uh, your, your medical sports doctor, to make sure that you've got your timing right and that you're getting the test done when it's appropriate to make a, a, a good call on where your iron levels are at. Yeah, you see, I, I, I find that fascinating for a number of reasons because, well, the main thing that crops up in my head is over the years, uh, not so much with individual athletes that I've worked with, um, but people in team sports, um, there is a logistics issue here of, you know, how practical is it to have everyone tested, uh, individually. And like, in, I've worked a lot in football and rugby, for example, and particularly in football, uh, where they do tend to test for these things. Um, it, it's, it's, it's done like once a year sort of scenario as a general sort of preseason screening. Um, and that's interesting for a number of reasons. Well, firstly, it's football players. So I, we'll get into that topic in a minute you know uh, the difference between different types of athletes and so on but obviously uh we've also got people of different uh nationalities uh you know they have all sorts of different backgrounds and and so on which could complicate this so would i guess the first thing there is is are you saying that it really does need to be done on an individualized basis or is it okay to do some sort of general screen on an athletic population look i think um i think to get a, a real outcome it should be done on an individual basis and just like training i think it, you know you don't prescribe training to an individual based on a generic group outcome you try and make the training specific to the individual i, I think you still need to consider that when you're doing screening from a blood panel perspective such as the one we're talking about because if you just send everyone off in the afternoon for a, a you know the team's free, let's get the nurse in to take the blood to yeah. uh, to assess their iron levels, then you, you're probably uh, interpreting data that isn't reflective of, of what you want it to be. So uh, unless you can get the the um, individual you know, at an optimised state, then you're probably not really getting data that's meaningful and we don't want to make calls on non-meaningful data. So I do think that you need to consider where the athlete's at in terms of uh, getting them tested for their iron levels. And, you know, you've already mentioned this, uh, but I just, before we move on from here, because it's such an important thing, um, is when someone has a blood screen um, and it will test for iron, you, you know, one is, for those that are unaware of this sort of thing, they're going to assume that they've done everything that's necessary to test and determine their iron status that's going to be relevant to them as, as athletes, which might be what is happening in those generalized screens. And of course, it's not, is it? um sorry could you sorry no yeah. what, I, what, what i mean though is is you've already made it clear that there are a certain number of markers that need to be looked at looked at um yep. and um it, you know it is possible to do a very basic 
screen for iron status. Um, sure. Yeah. Both, sure. both of which result in the simplified understanding of iron status, but they don't mean the same thing, do they? No. So, like, you could send an athlete just to have their ferritin checked, and yeah. it, like, it's common that uh, you, that an athlete will walk away with a, a blood screening form that says check serum ferritin, but really, that's not going to tell you a lot without the other measurements that are on that form that you could be looking at. So in association with ferritin, at a minimum, you should be looking at transferrin, uh, the iron levels, the saturation of that transferrin with iron, and the hemoglobin levels. So that's kind of your minimum uh, look at, at, at a panel so that you can get a, a good idea as to what the picture is that you're looking at and whether we're having an impact on hemoglobin or, or not. In a, in a really elite population where you've got lots of resource, you would also probably look at hemoglobin mass, um, which obviously takes the plasma volume expansion uh, out of the equation. So hemoglobin mass would be a, um, a really significant um, measure to look at in conjunction with your ferritin levels. And then we would also recommend that you would get um, some form of inflammatory marker like C-reactive protein measure just to make sure that there's no underlying uh, illness that, that could also be influencing uh, the, the levels that you're reading. So it's really a holistic picture. If you were to just walk away and say, my ferritin is low, uh, that really wouldn't give you a true picture as to what's going on. And it certainly wouldn't tell you the severity of uh, the issue that you're dealing with. Yeah. So I think it's really important to get and the, the Listen, the, 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 the reason I'm, I'm just hanging on this point so much is because I <laughs> yeah. have seen it. I've seen it so often. I have... Um, uh, works, you know, with lots of athletes over the years and the team, you know, physicians are all very good, but they tend to be borrowed from general practice frequently and they're not necessarily, um, you know, people who are specializing in, in this area and they will, they will pass, uh, pass, you know, pass someone on as being absolutely fine based on those simplified tests. So, um, yeah. at least we can, we can give them this podcast and your paper to, uh, to, uh, open up their eyes a little bit and then just yeah. find so, this sorry i'll just say that um this framework we put together to try and improve process at, at the institute where um, a number of the authors on the paper work and so this framework has kind of been implemented into uh our institution's uh policy in a sense around how athletes are screened so we've tried to put it together to be practical so it's usable and uh, the people that are on the paper are, are all practitioners themselves so it's Hopefully, it's a usable guide as to how to go about screening appropriately uh, within the means of the common markers that we would get from a yeah. blood panel. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, well, as I said, this paper is going to be linked to the podcast. Um, and then just finally on the testing then, you know, they, they, they don't just necessarily do this once a year, which for some people's progress because they don't get tested at all. Um, but what, what, you know, what, what, what do we need to be thinking about frequency of, of testing? Yeah, I think if, if you have no history of iron deficiency and um, so the institute where I work, for instance, people have a generic annual screen. If there's no issues on that uh, generic annual screen, uh, then you, you've probably got an athlete who, you know, with healthy iron stores consistently on their annual screen is showing healthy iron stores. Uh, then that's, you know, you can tick over with that and just monitor them over time in the context of making sure that those pre-test conditions are met. Yeah. Uh, then you've got, so one thing to mention is there's a, a difference between males and females in that females are consistently shown to be at a greater risk of iron deficiency than male athletes. 
And so just that in itself, with a menstruating female athlete um, who's probably partaking in an endurance-based sport, those are some tick boxes that would make us say, well, this is a, a, a probably a more at-risk population. So it's that population that we might start to test biannually. So it's not just a one-off and go, oh, there was a problem, but we, we attempted to fix it. It's making sure that we know the underlying risk factors that lend themselves towards athletes being predisposed to iron deficiency. If we're a female athlete in an endurance sport with a regular menstrual cycle, then we should be checking those athletes uh, on multiple occasions annually to make sure that the uh, that their iron stores are appropriate. And also biannual screening would also be recommended for athletes that have a known iron deficiency in the past and it's been something that you've been working on to try and improve just to make sure that your intervention has some efficacy to it. Uh, and, and then I guess the other group that we'd be interested in that, um, that we would want to screen and screen probably more regularly would be those that are visiting altitude, um, which if uh, listeners go back to the uh, podcast that you did with Trent Stellingworth, who did a great job in, in talking through the nuances of altitude training and, and the iron requirements um, of those athletes. Obviously, that's a, a, a special group where we would want to know their iron stores before they left uh, mm. during that. Um, altitude sojourn and then when they came back and, and what the influence of that trip itself has had on that group. So uh, the different cases but certainly different approaches depending on the athlete, the sport they're in, their history and where they're headed and what they've been doing. So certainly it's not a one-size-fits-all test where you can take a lot from just a serum ferritin number. You've got to consider the context around those numbers to be able to make a call as to how to to go about treating the issue if there is an issue or not being concerned if there is no issue. See, I can see why this wasn't just a PhD. This is just many, many, many studies. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is such a big topic and all it is, it is is just a four letter word, iron. And we're like, we're, we're, we've already been talking for like 40 minutes about this. So let's get into yeah. some uh, juicier stuff. Cause I know, I know people want to learn even more about this. So, Right, look, okay, iron is seriously important. We know this. Uh, you've helped us understand uh, why, uh, and we've dipped into, into how that might affect us, which we're going to go much deeper into uh, in a minute. But how, how, does, how does someone even get into this situation where iron status could be compromised? Um, so by that, I mean, like, you know, what are, the, what are the different sort of contributing factors behind this situation? Yeah, um, so it's a good question. There's, there's, there are, as the context comment that we just made and the number of PhDs or different studies that you, you could think of, this is probably a bigger can of worms to open. Um, but I, I guess uh, if you take the, the information that we've talked about thus far, we've we noted in there that uh, athletes don't generate their own iron. So there's no endogenous way for us to, um, to make iron to serve the needs. We have to look for exogenous sources to be able to put iron into the system. So one of the key ways that people become iron deficient is likely a result of being in an energy deficient state and possibly not eating enough um, to sustain the work that they're doing. And therefore, by not eating enough, uh, there's a inherent factor within that that the iron contained in the food isn't enough to serve the needs of the body so making sure that we're consuming enough energy is is certainly one way 
um, that we could address an iron deficiency, but it's certainly also a way that we could uh, explain an iron deficiency is that athletes are not getting the amount of iron that they require in the food that they're eating. So that's one kind of really complex area that you could dive into. But then there's these other exercise-related mechanisms that lend themselves to us losing iron. So uh, adding a burden to our iron levels um, based on the fact that we're exercising. So some of those include uh, a concept called hemolysis, which is the destruction of red blood cells. And this tends to happen to older red blood cells, uh, especially when we've got high-impact sports. So hemolysis is the destruction of the red blood cell, which means that the content of that red blood cell is, is leaked out into the system and the iron is leaked out with that. So the body has a pretty unique process to try and tidy that up because free iron floating around the body is, is quite toxic. So macrophages kind of cruise around and clean up the mess from senescent red blood cells. Uh, but then the macrophage kind of locks the iron into the macrophage and, uh, and the master regulator that we'll talk about in a second uh, almost locks it within the macrophage and it's hard for us to recycle it. So we'll come back to that, but that's, that's a, a process around how we, we possibly lose iron from exercise. Uh, when we exercise, we obviously get dehydrated and um, one of the implications from becoming dehydrated is we get uh, gastric lesions from um, the GI tract um, rubbing during exercise and we can lose some blood um, in our stool. So that's another way that we can lose iron because we're losing blood. Uh, we store some iron in our sweat pores. So when we sweat profusely, we lose a bit of iron that's been stored in our, our sweat pores. So there's another exercise related mechanism by which we can lose iron. And then there's the inflammatory process that occurs um, in conjunction with exercise. And what we know is that uh, subsequent to exercise, we get an inflammatory response and specifically of one of the key cytokines that we see elevated from uh, inflammation is called interleukin-6. And uh, when interleukin-6 is elevated, in the three to six hour post-elevation of IL-6, we we see that our key regulatory hormone for iron uptake, uh, hepcidin, is also elevated. And so when we get an elevation in this hormone known as hepcidin, what it does is uh, hepcidin sits on the only known iron uh, exporter channels uh, in the body, which are called ferroportin. And these ferroportin channels exist in the gut and on macrophages. So we'll come back to the macrophage story here. So when we've got an elevation in hepcidin levels as a result of exercise, uh, the, the ferroportin channels are, are basically blocked. And what that means is that we, um, during that period, we have a reduction in the amount of iron that we can absorb from the gut. And we also have a reduction in the amount of iron that we can recycle from the macrophage. And therefore the senescent red blood cell iron is effectively trapped. So we've got these two processes that are occurring that are basically um, uh, preventing us from utilizing recycled iron or from absorbing iron in the diet and with exercise this is quite a transient process uh, but that lends itself to us thinking about the timing of when we should be consuming iron and what how we can optimize our iron intake to try and encourage optimal iron uptake but holistically they're the the numerous avenues by which we can lose iron during exercise and then of course female athletes have the added uh, burden of a menstrual cycle which is again relative to uh, blood loss. So uh, female athletes have that added burden beyond a, a male's iron requirements to also contend with. So you just mentioned uh, uh, something there. 
And I, I don't want to lose it um, because it's such an important thing. Something, something that's come up a lot lately is this, this topic of um, energy availability, uh, specifically the, the very likely risk that, especially in elite athletes, particularly in elite endurance athletes um, or, or athletes that are involved in just enormous volumes of intense training is there is a very real risk um, of going into low energy availability and you know that that's all that work on relative energy deficiency and i've had many conversations with uh, many experts on this on this topic and you, you know we've been talking about uh, trent stainworth there we had this conversation about the implications that that has for altitude training and there are all sorts of conversations we've had with people like kirsty elliott sale uh, Craig Sell, James Morton, and just just to name a, a couple, where we've explored that from different perspectives. Um, and if we're in danger of going right, okay, well, if we want to simplify that conversation, it basically just means they're not eating enough, right? Or, or, or specifically, by the terminology, the suggestion is is that it's quite simply we're not eating enough energy. But then when I um, reflect back to a couple of podcasts ago with Neil Walsh, Professor Neil Walsh, we talked about um, athlete immunity. We, we got into a conversation there where he was challenging the, um, you, you know, th this issue of low energy availability and whether or not it really is going to impact um, in the context of that conversation, the, the immune system, because essentially what what the discussion revolved around was the habit that scientists tend to have which is to take a reductionist view uh, on these things. And that's necessary, of course, because that's how, uh, you, you know, you control all your variables and you understand, you know, how to um, make your, your scientific study um, as ideal as possible in terms of being able to interpret, you know, what it all means. But bring us back to the real world um, where there's a lot of stuff going on. Not, not everyone that's eating... Um, or, or is in a low energy availability state necessarily has a low iron uh, intake in their diet um, because of course some people you know will depending on the food choices you've mentioned well we haven't gotten to this side of it yet you know the, the, the sort of where we get iron from in the diet but there are going to be choices that you make that will have higher levels of iron in the diet and there are going to be choices that people make that will result in a lot less iron. Is it, is it simply a case then, Pete, that if you're uh, eating a diet that is resulting, or you're in a low energy availability state for the various reasons that you can be, is it, is it low energy specifically, or is it a low energy with an associated low level or low quality iron content or is it both it is where i wanted to explore yeah it's a it's a great question and um my opinion would be that it is both um so you could have the instance where you have an athlete who's eating low uh, energy and therefore the by the inherent nature of the fact that they're not eating enough there is low levels relative of iron within that diet so i think that's one factor the other factor is if, you, if you're in a low energy availability state and you think about uh, the fact that you have possibly exercised, you've used some muscle glycogen and you're trying to replenish that muscle glycogen 
but your energy intake is not sufficient enough to completely restore the glycogen that you've used from that session. What we know from that situation is that when you do your next session, uh, the muscle will um, release IL-6 to signal the liver to increase glucose output to try and sustain the work that you're asking the body to do in that subsequent session. And so in that case, what we've got and what we've seen in, in uh, various studies is that you, if you go into your next session in, an, in a glycogen deplete state, the increase in IL-6 actually results in a greater level of hepcidin production. And so what that means is that now subsequent to that session, we're going to have a reduction in the amount of iron that we can absorb at the gut, whether or not the food you're eating in that post-exercise session uh, meal has high levels of iron or not. You're probably not going to uh, absorb as much of it as a result of the changes in hormone levels, so hepcidin levels, um, that are resulting from the increase in IL-6. So I think you can work your way back from, from that comment to say, well, if we're not replenishing muscle glycogen, we're going to have an increase in inflammatory cytokines and therefore we're going to signal for greater hepcidin levels and our absorption is going to be impacted regardless of whether the food is processed through the gut or not. We're not going to be able to get the iron out in those types of situations. So I think both would tick the box there. And I'm really pleased that you, you, you went into it at, at that level because the next point I was going to say, which is a very popular area now, um, uh, and I've talked to a lot of people about the benefits of nutrition periodization and in particular carbohydrate restriction, train low, you know, um, that sort of thing. And I've done loads of podcasts about that. But the the, the reason why I was mentioning the dangers of, taking a reductionist approach to these conversations, particularly when we're trying to look at the translational potential of that research into real world practice is what I refer to as that you, you can, but should you sort of thought process? Yeah, you can do that. And it will, you know, supercharge mitochondrial biogenesis and do all those wonderful things that goes with that. But what about the other sort of consequences? And I think that, that what you've, what you've helped us understand is that the consequences of, of going down that path, um, you know, could be uh, quite significant as it relates to iron status. And then it's like, well, okay, if we do a cost to benefit analysis of that particular strategy, um, maybe the consequences aren't worth it. Um, so it's really, a, it is a can, but should you, you know, a think process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so um, there's a, a PhD student of ours, Alana McKay, uh, in collaboration with Louise Burke, has been working on the supernova studies, which I'm sure many yeah. of the listeners are aware of, uh, and has been looking at, at exactly that. What are the implications on some of these iron and, and immune status outcomes as a result of, in that instance, uh, the high-fat, uh, low-carb diets versus your, your regular carbohydrate diets and, and in one of uh, Alana's studies she did show that hepcidin levels are elevated uh, when consuming a, a high fat low carb diet and therefore uh, the, the downstream effects of that are on iron absorption and and then if you think about that the consequences of having low iron stores that we talked about initially are athletes feeling flat and fatigue so are they going to go into their session ready to adapt to that session? Probably not if they're feeling those 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 feelings um, and, and not able to train. And if it gets to a point where you haven't rectified the issue and we start to impact 
uh, hemoglobin mass, then physical work capacity decreases. And all of a sudden we snowballed into a situation where the, the athlete's training ability is, is reduced. So that's not a good outcome. Yeah. And I look, you know, I, I, we just all have to bear in mind that there are pros and cons to many different types of strategy and they all have a place in the, uh, the toolbox of, um, uh, of strategies that, you know, sports scientists, coaches, nutritionists, doctors, and so on can have. We just need to be aware of the strengths and limitations of these, don't we? That's right. And, and so that, that comment wasn't based around don't use these tools. Mm. It was more about you've just got to be sensible about when you're putting the iron back into the system to be able to make sure that you don't end up in a deficient state. So as, as you mentioned, all of those diets possibly have a place uh, a time and a place for a, a specific type of adaptation. But yeah. just as you periodize your training, you should periodize your diet. And just as you periodize your diet, we think you should also be periodizing when your iron intake is relative to training. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, yeah. it's clear in your paper. I just, I like, I like to talk about yeah. this. Yeah, of course. That leads me um, to a related topic, which is um, I, oh, a few years ago now, I, I did um, a podcast with, uh, Professor Mike Gleason, all about you know immunity and nutrition and so on, which I extended with with Neil Walsh. Um, and and back then uh, I was particularly interested in this low carbohydrate uh, you know training strategy. And one one thing that came up in that conversation was ah, um, oh, but you know what we what we're not thinking about is the long term sort of chronic. Uh, uh, impact of low carbohydrate training because of course you know people don't periodize frequently people get obsessed by one thing and the thing that i'm wanting to quickly talk about is the obsession with going low carb um, or keto adaptation and so on particularly with uh endurance athletes where people do argue yeah well you know there's a there's an argument for training in low or very low uh states of, of carbohydrate um, and they're basing that on, you know, the research that, uh, again, just to illustrate the reductionist research that is looking at the pros and cons of that on metabolic efficiency, you know, substrate utilization, maximizing the body's ability to use our significant stores of, of, of fat and preserving those precious stores of carbohydrates. But just so that we can move on to something else in a second, from as it relates to iron status, um, what, what would your thoughts and what would your advice or, or your cautions be to those that are looking at that chronic low carbohydrate training, um, uh, approaches? Yeah, I think, um, I think the, the, the timing of, of intake is, is really important and we'll probably move on to that anyway. I think, um, that over a prolonged period of time, like a training block, we know that uh, if we're looking for adaptation, our iron levels are going to fall over. Uh, if, you, if you go into a camp situation, for instance, you generally see a lower iron status at the end of, of the camp as compared to the start, and, and you would assume that that's a result of adaptation um, from a hemoglobin perspective. Um, so if, if you're on a long-term or a more chronic um keto diet it's probably about the food choices that you're making so making sure that uh, there is enough iron content within the foods that you're choosing um, for that diet uh, and knowing that there's an impact there of having low carbohydrate 
um, availability uh, and potentially a, an increase in the inflammatory states, it's, it's going to be really um, important to make sure that your iron is being consumed at optimal times that we know within the post-exercise period are, are going to have best outcomes on your ability to absorb iron. Um, and, and I guess we may get into that uh, as we move through the podcast, but certainly from our perspective, it's it's a, in the morning and as close to finishing exercise as possible, especially if you know that the exercise itself is going to have an increased inflammatory response as a result of the low carbohydrate and therefore making sure that you can uh, get the food, uh, the, the iron within the food that you're consuming uh, into the gut within enough time to, to beat the increase in hepcidin, so the regulation of iron absorption, um, as, as possible. Brilliant. Yeah. So again, that's a, an example of you can, anything can work. You just got to be aware of a great deal number of things in order to get <laughs> yeah. it right. Clearly. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, and I would say we're still, we're still exploring what those optimal times are. So we've got some really good data that's just been produced by a student of ours, Rachel McCormick, who's been her, her thesis that she's about to submit is titled, optimizing strategies for iron intake. Um, so we've been working quite a lot on sh- strategic ways to consume iron, um, but we, there's still at least 10 studies that you could do at the back of her PhD to try and optimize uh, how you go about doing this. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. So I, I can see we're going to, this could go on forever, this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've got so much I want to talk about. So um, just quickly then, um, you know, we, we've, we've referred to gender um, by virtue of talking about male and females. You've mentioned briefly earlier on that um, menses could be a factor for um, concerns over iron status. Um, but, but what about gender? Um, you know, and, and I guess there might be a a propensity for, for people to think this is more of a female problem. Um, but is that true? And, and why should men be uh, paying more attention to this? Yeah, uh, look, so the, the statistics would tell you that this is uh, more of an influence or a problem in, in females than it is in males. Uh, and, and on a population perspective, 20 to 30% of females may uh, present as, as iron deficient. On a male perspective, in the general population, it could be as low as two to five percent. But when you then move that into a, a, an athlete population, uh, from given cohorts, we've seen up to ten percent, even fifteen percent of, of cohorts are presenting uh, with iron depletion and, and potential iron deficiency uh, issues. So it's it, it is a problem for male athletes. Um, it's just not as um, prominent as it is in female athletes, uh, based on the on the prospect uh, that the menstrual cycle has a significant um, uh, period of, of blood loss, and with any kind of uh, blood loss, you will lose iron. So it's it's really important for that group to increase their iron intake, and that's that's um, that comes through in the recommended daily intake of iron on a general population. Is for males, it's about eight milligrams per day, and with females, it's eighteen milligrams per day. And that's purely a result of differences in, in how the body functions. Um, the one thing that I would say, though, between difference between male and females are, are those sex hormones. So testosterone is, is uh, known to uh, decrease uh, hepcidin levels. Um, and similarly, estrogen is known to decrease hepcidin levels, but progesterone is known to 
um, increased hepcidin levels. So within a female's uh, ovulation cycle, uh, um, menstrual cycle, should I say, there's there's surges in different hormones that will alter uh, the ability to absorb iron at, a, at the gut level. So whereas men are fairly consistent, females have these uh, variations in hormones that can affect their ability to absorb iron at different stages of that menstrual cycle. And so again, it's about strategizing uh, where the, the athlete might be at in the menstrual cycle as to when they may best absorb uh, iron from their diet and, and possibly periodizing around that. So there's, okay, there's two things there that suddenly cropped up in my head. <laughs> sure, yeah. Is, uh, uh, are we talking um, more, say, supra-physiological levels of these hormones? So for example, when people are taking exogenous hormones like the oral you know contraceptives is a, an obvious very common source of of this but also um it may be the the the, the more muscle-bound athletes who who may or may not be uh, or who are allegedly um maybe taking some um extra uh medication so to speak that's going to play around with their with their hormones are you know is that something that is of concern and maybe that population aren't necessarily that concerned with the iron levels anyway but yeah it's the super physiological impact of it or and the second part of it is well what about say with youths um people going through adolescence and going from let's say being a young man to a man and yeah. their hormones you know, uh, surging is, is that, you know, cause there's a lot of youth athletes out there that this is obviously of interest to what, what about those thought processes? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there. I'll, I'll probably stay away from the, uh, <laughs> the testosterone bound, uh, yeah, muscle okay. population, not really a population that I've uh, worked with. Certainly, um, uh, we've done some work in, in OCP use, so oral contraceptive um, pills and and the the beauty of that population is the the hormone release is somewhat regulated by the uh, by the the pill so um, and and it's known that uh, athletes on an OCP tend to have uh, lower menstrual blood losses and therefore the benefit of that that OCP is is based around the fact that uh, possibly menstrual bleeding is less heavy and therefore uh, you don't lose as much iron from each cycle and also you, the the hormones are, are more regulated and you could probably better predict uh, when would be best to iron supplement in groups uh, uh, on an oral contraceptive pill. Certainly the youth concept is, is also interesting and, and the iron uh, recommended daily intakes are fairly generic but I think there's a lot of work that's needed um, around athletes iron needs and I, I don't think the recommended daily intakes uh, are necessarily great guides for athletes in these situations so I actually think there's a lot of research that could be done in in youth athletes and what their iron requirements are okay fascinating it's worth the thought um, yeah 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 um, all right so let's, let's just come back to uh, the so what part of this conversation like so okay someone is going down this path of of potentially having some form of compromised uh, iron status. I, I know we started this conversation with, um, you know, why, why is iron so important in the first place? But maybe you could just give us a, a little bit of an idea as to how that may actually um, impact performance. You know, what, what, what are the consequences of this on various types of athletes? Yeah, um, so I, 
there's a there's a really cool case study actually by Laura Garvikin and and Laura Garvikin or um, her married name is Laura Garvikin Lewis so you, you may see that hyphenated in in much of her more recent work um, but Laura uh, has done a lot of work with us and she's done a lot of work with Chris Gore and the AIS looking at um, different forms of iron and how you get iron into the body. But Laura um, actually wrote this really cool case study on an N of one. Um, and the great thing about this case study is it was an elite athlete. Uh, they had really good control on training uh, and they had really good control on supplementing and they had really good measures that were really consistent over time. And um, what Laura's study showed is on this case study, there was an athlete presented with fatigue, lethargy, like we spoke about before, had a blood panel, serum ferritin levels were really low, hemoglobin mass was in the 300s, which for an elite female runner is, is really low. Um, so in this study, what they did is they supplemented the athlete with an iron injection, and then they gave um, oral supplements as follow-up uh, for a number of weeks post. And what they did is they tracked the ferritin levels, which after you have an iron injection, for instance, ferritin levels go up through the roof, so they improve really rapidly, which in this situation was a, was a really uh, good outcome, although there's um, some nuances around whether you use oral supplementation or uh, intravenous supplementation, which we can talk about later if we have time. But in this case, that's what they did because the severity of the iron deficiency was um, was such that it required it. And over this um over this post-follow-up period, you saw the uh, hemoglobin mass from the iron injection and the supplementation go from in the 300 grams range up to around 750, it might have been closer to 800 grams hemoglobin mass. And serum ferritin uh, went up from around 9 micrograms per litre up to around 30 micrograms litre per litre. So what, in essence, supplementing this athlete did was it provided a toolkit for adaptation. And as soon as that toolkit was there for adaptation, the hemoglobin mass went up and the iron levels to service that hemoglobin mass also went up. So the change in hemoglobin mass also went up. So we've got this toolkit there. So I guess the so what point is, is if we have an athlete that's iron deficient and we can provide them with the tools for adaptation, having good iron stores can lead to that adaptation, which can ultimately enhance performance. And the beauty of this case study, I'm getting there, is that they uh, they did a 3,000 metre, they had, there was a 3,000 metre track race as, as part of the period in which they looked at. And the athlete ran a PB uh, at about, I think it was about four or six weeks after the uh, injection and uh, when their hemoglobin mass levels had come up to where you would expect them to be for an elite athlete. So by providing the toolkit, we've got an adaptation and we've also seen a performance outcome. And so that case study is a really neat way to show the so what factor that you talk about. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of case studies. Done, done a, yeah. published a few myself. And, uh, um, uh, you know, that leads me to an interesting point that's worth a, a brief look at is when we look at the body of knowledge that exists out there, you know, that comes from studies that are done on non-elite athletes. And by elite, I mean, not the case study you've just discussed. It's going to be, you know, people who the researchers can actually get access to who might on some level be sort of elite, but not necessarily elite at, you know, world, world class. Um, you know, is that something that we need to bear in mind on this, you know, when we're looking at all this information? And is that something that, that you're very conscious about in your own work? 
Yeah, um, probably two parts to that. I think um, Trent's Trent's podcast that he did with yourself was great when you asked him a similar question. He he uh, he said I think he said bugaboo, which made me laugh. But elite was uh, the term elite was a bugaboo for him, and he said that in that very um, charismatic uh, Canadian accent that he has. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with his uh, commentary there in that if you're going to use the term elite, it should be someone uh, who has an appreciable chance of making a national team. World Championships or an Olympics, that's that's elite um, to the worlds that we work in. Uh, the, the thing about iron, though, is that it's relevant to all populations below that level as well as that level, and uh, the nuances uh, around that elite level are, are contextual. So they're about all those things that we spoke about before, and, and in that group, the periodization of training becomes uh, of supplementation, for instance, sorry, becomes all the more important because it's a group where your opportunities to have an impact are quite limited. Whereas in the general population, you could probably get away with more generic processes. So I think when, as you get to the pointier end, you have to be more and more mindful about being specific to the individual and taking their context into account when you are applying these supplement protocols and those sorts of things. Yeah, so obviously, number one, absolutely need to be testing. And yeah. number two, you absolutely need to be aware of the demands of of the training um, and the long-term consequences of that. All right. So look, we're talking about nutrition and um, we've been looking a lot sort of what's been happening under, under the bonnet, under the hood, so to speak with this, but you know, people get into this situation, not just because of their training, not just because of being in low energy availability. It might just be because they're making poor choices through their diet, or may not even be a poor choice. It may be just the consequences of their particular diet they follow, which could be by preference or religion or, or whatever. Let, if we just take a food first approach to this part of the conversation first, just by virtue of that's what we do as humans. We eat multiple times a day. We eat for different reasons. Um, just generally speaking, what, are, what is the impact of diet? on iron status and what are the consequences of those preferences that we have? Yeah, it's really important. And I really like the term food first approach. And I like that term in many different aspects of um, performance nutrition, specifically to iron. I think a food first approach is something that we take when there's an athlete who's, you know, on the borderline of healthy iron stores and, and we want to try and, uh, see if we can prevent them from falling into a, a deficient state. So food first approach is really good there because um, you can try and optimize diet to get a better outcome. But there are some nuances around diet that can affect your ability to um, absorb iron. So probably the, the, the most logical one to, to discuss is vegetarian athletes. And so what we know is in the food that we eat, there's two types of iron that we can come across. And so there's heme iron, which we find in red meat sources or meat sources. And there's non-heme iron, which we find in plant-based uh, foods like leafy green vegetables and, and those sorts of foods. So a vegetarian really only has access to these non-heme iron sources. And um, what we know is within the body, we process those two different types of iron quite differently. And non-heme iron is much less efficient at getting across the gut than heme iron is, to the point where we may only absorb between 2 and 20% of non-heme iron, of a non-heme iron content of the food that we're 
eating, whereas in the heme iron context, we might absorb anywhere from 5 to 35% of that iron. So we've got a much greater chance of absorbing the iron from the types of food we're eating if the iron is coming from a meat source as opposed to if it's coming from a vegetable source. So vegetarians have to be extra mindful about the amounts of iron that they're getting in and how much of that iron that they're going to absorb from the types of food that they're eating. So they're going to have to increase the types of food that they have in that diet that are containing, uh, that are high iron containing. The other thing to consider when we're talking about a food first approach is there are lots of uh, enhancers and inhibitors of iron uptake at the level of the gut. So a well-known iron enhancer is to consume your iron with vitamin C and vitamin C seems to help that transport process of iron across the gut. Whereas things like tannins and calcium seem to be iron inhibitors. So if we're consuming uh, high calcium containing foods or teas and coffees with the um, foods that we're eating, uh, the tannins within teas and coffees can inhibit the iron absorption at the level of the gut. So we need to be mindful again around what the composition of the food is we're eating and trying not to mix inhibitors with high iron containing foods which i always find there's some irony around calcium being an inhibitor but cereals so breakfast cereals being iron fortified the two don't generally go together so you should put your orange juice on your cereal rather than your milk yeah yeah good, good <laughs> luck with getting my kids trying to eat that one though <laughs> yeah, yeah although there is there's a bit of work out there that shows that although there is the calcium inhibitor in the milk, uh, you still do absorb uh, some of the iron from the cereals that, that are being consumed. So it's, it's not a case of it doesn't get across the gut, but yeah. it's just that those inhibitors make it less efficient. Uh, and we don't just stick food uh, in our mouths. We, we have to do things like chew, digest, absorb. Um, we also may be eating um, in a nice relaxed state or we might be eating, you know, on the run, literally. Um, is there anything there that is worthy uh, of thinking about? Um, uh, to, that comes to mind, no. Um, I guess if you're not in a, in a relaxed state, then your ability to digest the, the, the food is, is obviously implicated. Um, but I haven't come across anything that looks at, I guess, a stress state versus a relaxed digest state um, and, and what the implications on iron might be. So I'd yeah, no, I, I, I just you know, asked. I didn't answer that. Yeah, but it's yeah. interesting. Yeah it, could, yeah, it could be. Well, maybe that's another study for someone. And uh, yeah, because a lot of athletes, particularly like athletes who, you know, um, I'm thinking I work a lot with ultra endurance athletes, for example. And these are people who m will do many events throughout the year the training alone is just absolutely nuts. So they're in a constant state of low energy availability. You know, the, the consequences of iron deficiency are all year round. But one place that they have to consume food is whilst they're out there doing their, their events. And um, that's where, you know, I was thinking, you know, are there ways that we can deal with that even, even whilst they're, f they're consuming food whilst they're performing? Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting. And, and I, because there are so many factors that contribute to the potential for you to absorb iron, it would probably be quite hard to nail it down. But I imagine in a chronically stressed state, your body is is not really in um, in the right, uh, I guess, shape to optimally uh, take in nutrient and digest it anyway. So I think it would actually be a really cool look at um, chronic stress and what the incidence of uh, iron 
dysfunction might be, uh, although I'm not, I'm not aware of it, but it could exist. Yeah. And I just like yeah. one area I think that would be of interest might be in the more uh, sort of military side of things where you've got, you know, these sort of, um, the, you know, soldiers or elite special forces, you know, out in pretty crazy environments like altitude and low energy availability for protracted periods of time, particularly during times of conflict where iron status is absolutely going to be of interest to, to the soldiers yeah. out there. Yeah, there's a, there's a researcher, James McClung, who works uh, with the U.S. military uh, nutrition team, and he's done a lot of work in uh, the iron requirements of, uh, of elite soldiers. Mm. And they've shown similar outcomes around um, hepcidin changes over time, uh, iron, iron deficiency in certain cohorts and changes in, in iron status over prolonged periods uh, out in the wilderness. So there's, there's a bit of work out there, and James McClung has done a, a, a great job of uh, documenting. That. Yeah, that could be uh, that could be a podcast. I have a, a lot of interest in nutrition for uh, elite soldiers. So um, yeah. thanks for that. I'm going to look that one up. Um, yeah. Look, we 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 obviously could keep going, and uh, I'm just mindful that um, it, it, beyond uh, the listeners that their brains may have exploded already at this point. Um, there is a time limit um, that, uh, that that we uh, you know that we might be extending here. Um, yeah. Let's just quickly then, well, not quickly necessarily, but let's let's get into the other side of this then, right? So we're, we're aware of causes and consequences of um, you know issues relating to iron status for active people and athletes in particular let's talk about the um, beyond the so what now let's do something about it. So, you know, what, what kinds of strategies are there to you? I think you've already, you've, you've basically covered the prevention side of things, but let's say we've now, we now realize that we are in varying states of iron deficiency, whether it's non anemia or right the way through to full blown anemia. How do you know, how, how, how would we deal with this? I, I, I know it's difficult to generalize, um, but yeah. if you could give us sort of your, your overview on that, that would be really helpful. Yeah. So look, I think um, there's three approaches that we generally would consider to, to, to fix a problem. And uh, the first one we kind of touched on, which is that food first approach. And for us, um, we would generally recommend that food first approach in uh, athletes where their ferritin levels uh, and their uh, other blood panel markers would suggest that they are kind of on the borderline of being iron deficient. And so within that context, it's about working with your dietitian to try and improve your plate, basically, and make sure that what's on your plate uh, is is correct, uh, that you've got the best chance of absorbing iron from that food-first approach. Um, if we then move down into we've got an athlete who is considered iron deplete, um, but their hemoglobin levels are still okay. So they're iron deficient, but they're non-anemic. What we want to do is prevent that from going any further into a, a full-blown anemia. So in that instance, the approach would be to look um, at some oral iron supplements. And uh, probably many of your listeners would be aware of oral iron tablets, uh, which are the most common treatment that are prescribed or, or suggested for an iron deplete or an iron deficient individual with without anemia and um, in general so iron supplements can range in, in um, strength if you like or volume of, of iron within them from 60 milligrams through to 210 milligrams um, as a low dose versus a high dose iron supplement 
And so generally the research shows that if you can consume an iron, an oral iron supplement in the form of uh, ferrous sulfate for four to 12 weeks, then you'll get a significant improvement in your serum ferritin stores during that period. Uh, and the, the efficacy of that approach is quite high. Uh, the problem of that approach is it's quite slow. So it takes kind of three months for it to have an effect. And, and, and even at that point, your ferritin levels don't really recover that well. They just get you to a point where you consider, okay, you're probably now into a food first approach to make sure that we can try and hold on to these iron stores that we've uh, given you. But if an athlete presents in the iron deficient anemic state, uh, that would be a, a, a process whereby you would go through your doctor and talk about other treatment strategies. And, and the third treatment strategy in an, in an athlete with uh, really low ferritin stores, but more importantly, compromised hemoglobin or hemoglobin mass, that's a candidate for us to start thinking about an iron infusion, uh, which is, which is a, a, I guess, a, another step beyond an oral iron supplement. And the oral, uh, sorry, the iron infusions work really well because you bypass the gut. So the issue in, in how much iron we can absorb all hinges on our gut's ability to tolerate the iron and, and absorb the iron. So oral iron supplements are, are associated with high levels of GI distress and athletes don't tend to deal too well or tolerate too well with them. So the, the third approach, and, and I'll, I'll reiterate, it's when serum ferritin levels are low, but importantly, uh, hemoglobin mass is compromised. These IV approaches can bypass the gut, rapidly increase uh, serum ferritin levels, but also have a, an impact on hemoglobin mass uh, and, and therefore the hematological benefits uh, of providing that toolkit to the athlete. We tend to reserve that um, approach for athletes that are iron deficient anemic because a lot of the research that has tried this approach in um, athletes that don't have anemia tend not to uh, see as good a results. So there's no improvement in hemoglobin mass beyond that um, where it's healthy in athletes that are just iron deficient. It's not a uh, so the, the intravenous approaches are certainly reserved for athletes uh, whose hemoglobin mass is compromised and, um, and, and we, we don't want to, we don't take using a needle for treatment lightly. So it needs to show cause that it requires that level of treatment um, because the athlete's health is of most importance. And some of these parenteral approaches in the research have shown issues with uh, um, allergy to iron injections, anaphylaxis and those sorts of things. So the, the decision needs to be made in consultation with the sports physician and it needs to be a, a significant case for you to not go down the oral route or the food first route and you need to be significantly compromised to be thinking about using a needle to, to treat this issue. But it certainly is uh, a, a treatment methodology with good efficacy if the situation calls for it. Yeah, so I, I mean, for me, a big take home there is as a nutritionist, I absolutely, there's a lot I can do in terms of improving the food first sort of approach to, to that strategy, ensuring that the overall quantity and quality and to a certain extent, the timing aspects of that are, um, are something that I can really help with. But beyond that, in terms of thinking about my own scope of practice, I think, hmm, you know, this is where we really do need to start involving another expert who um, who can help with the testing and the interpretation of that and then have a, a collaboration on there. Is there any sort of advice you have for, for us in that regard? 
Yeah, I think the key take-home there is that the, this this issue, but probably, well, all issues in, in elite sport require a, a multidisciplinary look at how you're going to approach the problem. So if you're sitting there thinking you're a nutritionist or a physiologist or a sports medicine professional and dealing with this on your own, you should probably think about how you engage a team to, to address it because if you've, if you've got the supplement process right by the doctor, then the physiologist can look and tell you where in training this would be best to implement this and, and when training loads would most efficiently uh, be, be right for you to try and improve iron stores. And similarly, the dietitian can tell you about this person's eating uh, and how you might manipulate their eating to try and in increase their iron levels from that food-first approach. So I think the take-home there is really to work with your team and, and make sure you get the best outcome for the athlete based on the input from the different sides of the fence. Awesome. Pete, we've been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> and wow. there are things that we haven't <laughs> even got into and we certainly don't have time for. I think we, you know, I'll refer to the uh, podcast on um, altitude training with Trent, you know, where I think we got into iron uh, status and altitude sufficiently, um, where obviously they need to read your paper anyway. Um, and hypoxia is something else in your paper? Um, you know, is there anything there that you briefly wanted to touch on? Uh, yeah, I think, well, I think Trent's uh, podcast, so I'd encourage listeners to listen to your uh, podcast with Trent. I think he does a really good job of, of summarising that, but it's certainly important to screen athletes before going to altitude uh, on the knowledge that you can have a, a fairly good impact on an athlete's ability to adapt at altitude if you do something for them before they leave. And if you know you've got an athlete in need of iron before they leave, uh, you, you need to deal with it before they go. Otherwise, the camp in itself could be ineffective. So certainly it's an important um, uh, mineral to be considering in those contexts around hypoxia uh, because the, the deal with hypoxia is obviously about adaptation from a hematological perspective. And if you don't have the toolkit to be able to adapt, then you're almost throwing money down the toilet if you don't sort it out before you go. So it does speak volumes for the screening process and obviously the process get, of getting you to the camp uh, in, in a good shape to be able to adapt. But I do think um, Trent did a good job of, of explaining that. And, and as I mentioned before, Laura Garvican lewis who's done a lot of work in, in iron, um, is specifically relevant to altitude. And one of our uh, combined students that we had once, Andrew Govers, who now uh, works at La Trobe University, um, that crew have done a lot of work in that area. Um, so, so some good papers there from those groups to read if you're interested. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. All right, listen, let, okay, let's have a go at, um, or, or I'm going to give you a go at summarizing our conversation here. So, um, you know, what, what we've talked about is iron considerations for the athlete. Um, it's a really big topic, which I just think is just absolutely clear from, the last hour and, hour and a half and there are certain areas that we haven't been able to get into it's been fascinating uh, generally but but if you you know you're bumping into someone in the street and they're like what's all this iron <laughs> what's all this yeah. iron stuff about for, for athletes what, what is your sort of brief summary response yeah well, that's a good question isn't it uh, do we have another hour and a half I'm putting you on yeah yeah uh, look I would say uh, look all athletes uh, uh, require iron to be able to perform and so having good knowledge of the iron status of your athletes is really important uh, you, to get good knowledge on the iron status of athletes you need to have a rigorous way of uh, assessing uh, 
uh, their, their iron stores and it needs to be documented and processed um, over time to make sure you have a good picture of, of where your athlete's at. If you know that there's an issue, uh, you need to, um, to treat the issue as early as you can. So testing allows you to red flag when things are changing and, and try and get on top of it early. And the best way to get on top of it is, is a food-first approach. If it goes beyond uh, an issue where food is no longer able to, um, to correct the issue, then uh, considering an oral iron supplement to try and top up your iron stores uh, could be really important. And if it goes uh, beyond an iron deficiency and into an anemic state, then possibly working with your sports physician to look at parenteral means to improve iron status um, would be important. The reason that we do that is because we know if we have good iron stores, we're providing a toolkit for the body to adapt to the training stress or the environmental stress that we're putting in under, and adaptation generally leads to an improvement in performance. So if you work backwards from that, uh, adaptation is hinged on having good iron stores in the context of changes in hematology, and therefore iron becomes important for adaptation over time. Perfect. <laughs> what he said. What he yeah. said. <laughs> if you asked me to say it again, I'd have no idea. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you blagged it very well for the last 90 minutes. Um, yeah. Now, that was amazing. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to listening through that again. There's just so much to take from that. Um, and, of course, you know, it's additive to the papers that I will, I will link to. And um, if, if people want to you know, follow you more in your work. I'll, I'll put some links, but you know, are you, are you big on Twitter or is there any, any way you like people to follow you? Uh, I have a Twitter account. It's, uh, I don't, uh, yeah, I get on it and just see what others are doing. I, I uh, try and put things up as, as our, our team's work comes out. So I'm, I'm semi-active on Twitter, I guess. So that's fine. Or uh, my email address is always on the papers so you can sure. contact me that way. I, I would just like to say that um, all of this knowledge is generated by a big team of people as, mm. as all people's work is. So uh, Mark Sim, Laura Garvican-Lewis, uh, Greg Cox, Andy Govers, Alana McKay, Trent Stellingworth, Louise Burke, Claire Badenhorst, um, Rachel McCormick, this is all our team of people that work in this area. Debbie Trinder, Brian Dawson, lots of names who contribute to all of this knowledge and I just so happen to be talking to you that they could all do just as good a job in chatting about this area. No, that's a, well, it's an awesome group you're with. I've, I've interviewed a lot of those people actually, so I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with, with many of those names. Um, cool. Look, thank you, Pete. I, I think it's time to let you go. Um, there might have been, um, uh, well, I'm, we might need some iron actually. I think <laughs> I need to yeah. improve the blood flow back to my, to my brain. Um, yeah. um, but I do appreciate your time. It is much, you know, we're only a few days away from Christmas. So thank you for sharing with all of us. Yeah. Um, uh, thank I, you very much for having me. It's, uh, I've, the names of people that you have talked to in the past, uh, I'm privileged to have, to have been asked. So thanks for having me. Well, we had to lower the standard just for now. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm down with that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you. Um, you know, for, for everyone who's interested, they can catch up with all the, um, the many now podcasts that exist um, under podcasts at our website, the Institute Performance Nutrition, which is theiopn.com. We also have a specific website for this podcast, which is simply wedoscience.com, which is where you'll find all the show notes and links and downloadable stuff that relates to all of these episodes and of course if you're interested in uh, 
advancing your uh, knowledge and skills in, in sport and exercise nutrition as a professional performance nutritionist. Do look at what we do at the Institute of Performance Nutrition, our training programs. Some big announcements coming uh, early in 2020 relating to that, so do check us out at the IOPN. Um, I, of course, am Lauren Branner, can look forward to bringing another episode to you back in, uh, might, might be January, but there might be another one at the end of this year. We'll see, but take care, everyone, and happy Christmas. <laughs>